newcomers to Arizona might not know that the state has a rich Black history. Generally, Black history is more connected with the Southeast rather than the Southwest. And it's easy to view Arizona as more connected with its Hispanic or Native population when considering people of color. But Arizona, much like the rest of the country, had revolutionary Black activists fighting for their community. It may seem like small scale compared to more famous names like Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X. But like how voting in your local election impacts your day-to-day more than voting for president, the civil rights leaders of Phoenix and its surrounding cities changed the way Arizona is shaped today. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com about Metro Phoenix and beyond. I'm producer Amanda Luberto, and today we're re-airing a two-part series that I did in 2022 about one such revolutionary, Dr. Lincoln Ragsdale Sr. It's near impossible to talk about the 1950s and 1960s civil rights movement in Arizona without talking about the Ragsdale family, specifically Lincoln Sr. He was on the forefront of desegregation in the city, and his time fighting for racial freedoms went far beyond the classroom. Today I'm joined by historians, his friends, and his children to share the life and legacy of Dr. Lincoln Ragsdale Sr. In May 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously decided that separating educational facilities by race was unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. You'll know this famous case as Brown versus the Board of Education. One year earlier, in February 1953, Judge Struckmeyer in Arizona ruled that a law permitting students to be separated by race in the Phoenix Union School District was also unconstitutional. Phillips v. Phoenix Union High School and Junior College Districts is much less famous, but integrated schools a whole year before the rest of the country. This was able to happen because of a handful of civil rights activists in Phoenix, but one man in particular looked at this as just the tip of the iceberg. Dr. Lincoln Ragsdale Sr. helped fund a lawsuit on behalf of three black children during the Phoenix Union case, but his time fighting for racial freedoms in the Valley spread much further than high schools. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer your questions about Metro Phoenix and beyond. I'm producer Amanda Luberto, and today I'll share with you the life and impact of Lincoln Ragsdale. Before COVID-19, listener Cassandra would fly in and out of Sky Harbor International Airport every week. And one day, while waiting for a flight, she googled the name on the executive terminal, Lincoln Ragsdale. What she found was very interesting, but she wanted to know more. Who was Lincoln Ragsdale, and what did he do in his life to get an airport terminal named after him? Lincoln was born in Muskogee, Oklahoma in 1926. Before he was involved in integrating public schools in Phoenix, 
and before he was a pillar of the civil rights movement in the Valley, Lincoln was a pilot. He joined the renowned Tuskegee Airmen and entered World War II in January 1945. According to a video tribute about his life, it wasn't necessarily his passion for flying that inspired him to enlist in this corps of all-black military pilots. Here's Lincoln Sr. in his own words. So, but I wanted to be a pilot because I wanted to prove something. I had no real desire to fly. Uh, the paper said that blacks could not do it. I wanted to prove that we could do it because we were very segregated. The Army was segregated. The Navy was segregated. We couldn't use any facilities. We were treated as second-class citizens, but the only way to change that is to prove that you can do something. One of Lincoln's In other words, even his life as a pilot was about civil rights. After completing training, Lincoln made his way to Arizona. He was part of the group of first black airmen on Luke Air Force Base. At the time, Luke was experimenting with racial integration. This came two years before President Truman signed an executive order that integrated the entire Department of Defense. While it seems like a noble step forward, it was met with a lot of pushback and at times endangered some of the airmen. Lincoln was one of these men. Ben Bruce is the historian for the Archer Ragsdale Arizona chapter for the Tuskegee Airmen. The chapter is co-named after Fred Archer, the first black enlisted member of the U.S. Air Force to reach a highest ranking, and our subject today, Lincoln Ragsdale. We spoke about some of the experiences this first group of black men had while they were on Luke Air Force Base. So they came in December of 1945. He's put in quarters with another white officer, another pilot. This pilot is a captain and he's from Mississippi. And this is not going to be a good mix. Uh, when the pilot comes home late that night, he sees Lincoln there and he says, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I've been assigned as your roommate. And he said, well, you're not staying here with me. Well, Lincoln didn't leave the room, so he did. And the captain spent that first night uh, sleeping in his car. The next day, he went to his squadron commander, and he said, I want a new roommate. And the commander said, you're not getting a new roommate. And so this captain had to learn to deal with this black man uh, who he grew up being taught as being a person who was inferior to him. And that was a big adjustment this man had to make. For the first four days, he did sleep in his car. By the fifth day, because it's... It's uh, December in Phoenix. It gets a little cool. And finally, he decided he would just go ahead. But he never said anything to Lincoln the first uh, month or two that they were roommates. Ben knows these stories because they were shared with him by two other original Tuskegee Airmen, the late Lieutenant Colonel Robert Ashby and Lieutenant Colonel Asa Herring. Ashby and Herring also knew Lincoln before they came to Arizona. He said the week of graduation in November 1945, Lincoln's parents came down to Tuskegee to see him graduate, and he took the car into town to get it serviced and must have said the wrong thing to the gas attendant who got very upset, called the police, and eventually the police ended up in an altercation with him and almost beat him to death. The only reason I suspect that he was not beaten to death was he was wearing his uniform. So he graduated with a few bumps and bruises and a great dislike for Jim Crow, which is the segregated policies of the South uh, at this time uh, in the United States. So he didn't have a, a good time, a good experience at Tuskegee, and it would carry on later on to some of the experiences he had at Luke Air Force Base. Okay, back to the story about the roommate. 
one of the guys, Asa or Bobby, had told me that Lincoln uh, said that the captain had put water balloons in his bed. And, of course, he didn't know that until he got into his bed and he's moving around and all of a sudden the balloons burst and he's soaking wet. This was the first attempt to get Lincoln so upset that he would voluntarily get out of the room and get another roommate. Luke Air Force Base was trying to work out the kinks of housing the white and black airmen together. But one can assume water balloon strategies wasn't on their list of possible occurrences. And Lincoln wasn't the only person experiencing this disrespect. Each of the the 12 pilots, you know, had some issues. Uh, For example, the white airmen on the base would not salute any of the black officers as required by military customs and courtesies, just wouldn't do it. And so those were some of the challenges that, that they ran into. Some of the stories Ben shared were blatantly racist. Things Ben described as wives' tales of the time that we know are nowhere close to the truth. There was a story that Bob Ashby, late Bob Ashby, told me that Lincoln had shared with him that one day he was showering in the quarters, just taking a shower, and he looked over and he noticed that the white captain from Mississippi was watching him very intently. And Lincoln called him out on that. What are you doing? He says, well, in Mississippi, when I was growing up, they said y'all was so close to monkeys that you had tails. And I was trying to see what your tail looked like. And of course, Lincoln didn't have a tail and had to sit down and educate the man about that. Some of the discrimination was on the level of microaggressions. There was still a policy at the time that the ranking person at a table in a dining facility, Monday through Saturday, you are assigned a table to sit and eat at. And so in a dining facility, the officers, you'd go in and, and you have a certain table. On Sunday, you could sit any place you wanted, provided you got permission from the senior person on the table to sit down and eat. And unfortunately, Lincoln ran into the same problem that a lot of other officers have ran into on a Sunday when they would grab their breakfast, their lunch, their dinner, whatever it is, and they'd walk over and they'd have to ask permission to be seated and the permission was denied. And depending upon how many tables you have, that's how many times you would go around. If there's 50 tables, you might have to ask permission 49 or 50 times before somebody will allow you to sit and eat. And for many cases, a lot of the pilots just didn't eat on Sunday. At the officer's mess, they probably ate at the post exchange rather than suffer that humiliation. Because they had to spend a lot of their time together, the white roommate from Mississippi eventually loosened up, but maybe not on purpose. Ben says the first time the officer recognized Lincoln as a fellow officer was also perhaps the first time Lincoln was recognized as a human being. They're going down there for gunnery training. So this is rocket training and how to drop bombs and how to fire the gun accurately. And they have targets. And on this particular uh, mission, the captain from Mississippi was the lead pilot. One of the wingman was Lincoln and another was another pilot. So they had a three ship formation going in and strafing, machine gunning a target. And um, they did very well on that on that strafing pass. When they landed, they found out they did so well that they were the top in the competition, which took the captain over the moon. He was so excited that they were scoring number one because pilots are dog-eat-dog and they're very competitive. He was so excited, I guess he, he forgot himself. And he ran over and he congratulated both of the pilots, slapping them on the back, shaking their hands, and really excited they had done a good job. And all of a sudden he realized that he's standing there shaking the hand of that black pilot, Lincoln Ragsdale. And that was really the first time he acknowledged uh, Lincoln's skill as a pilot and a member of the United States Army Air Corps. Lincoln was only in Phoenix at Luke Air Force Base for a few months before returning to Alabama. 
Soon, the war was over, and he was released as a civilian. Hello, producer Kaylee Monahan here. We're just taking a short break to let you know about our free mobile app. Whether it's stories like this one, politics, or breaking news, keep up to date with the AZ Central app, available in the App Store and Google Play. During his time in the Valley, he was privy to the mistreatment Blacks and Hispanics were facing off the Air Force Base as well. At the time, the city of Phoenix was extremely segregated. If you were born in a hospital, you were born segregated. If you died, you were buried in a segregated um, cemetery. This is Dr. Matthew Whitaker. So a lot of people don't realize how segregated it was, and Lincoln Ragsdale was someone who almost immediately took exception to that at a very deep level and immediately set out to work to try to to change that. He's the founder of Diamond Strategies, a diversity and inclusion communication relations firm. Before that, he taught at Arizona State for 15 years, and he also wrote a book about Lincoln Ragsdale and his wife Eleanor and their impact on the civil rights movement in Phoenix. Matthew and I met in a meeting hall of the George Washington Carver Museum and Cultural Center. It's a preservation site in downtown Phoenix dedicated to the black history in Arizona. Before that, it was the Phoenix Union Colored High School where students of color were segregated too. When Lincoln returned to Arizona, he opened up a mortuary. Business opportunities were more available to people of color in Arizona than they were in the Deep South at the time. So Whitaker says he used this to his advantage. Funeral homes were a place, in addition to the church, where black folks generally owned the land and the building and the politics and the culture and everything that happened inside of the institution. So in addition to pursuing those, he also pursued leadership in his community, which meant advocating um, on behalf of people of color, black folks, and that meant civil rights activity. So there's no surprise he moved directly into that. The funeral home was located off 11th Street and Jefferson. Now, it's just off the light rail, down the road from the Arizona Diamondbacks Chase Field. At the time, Black people were regulated to housing south of Van Buren Street. Before the Fair Housing Act in 1968, redlining was a common practice in Phoenix. Now, I talked about redlining a bit in an episode I did with Arizona Republic reporter Taylor Seeley about a year ago, when we told the story of Allenville. Allenville was an all-Black community just south of Buckeye that was the only area of town in which people of color could physically own the land that they lived on. Due to redlining, the land that they were living on, though, was hazardous, and the town was destroyed by a series of floods in the 1970s. Redlining is a systemic discriminatory practice that makes resources unobtainable for residents based on their race. It was a term coined by sociologist John McKnight in the 1960s and comes from how federally sponsored leaders would literally draw a red line on a map to indicate the neighborhoods that they would not invest in based on demographics. As Lincoln's legacy shows, this went for businesses as well as homes. His mortuary served not only as a Black-owned business, but as a gathering space for his community. In his first mortuary, he made sure he had room rooms, I should say, 
for black people to host events. And many of those events were political orientation whereby people of African descent would learn certain things about whatever ballot measure was there, things that were affecting them, and be able to interact with people who would lobby on behalf of them. According to Matthew, he would also use these rooms as spaces for people of color to not only learn their rights, but how to handle sticky situations. One of the first things that he noticed, in addition to the Reverend George Brooks and Hazel B. Daniels and other black leaders at the time, was that Phoenix, just like the Deep South, hosted really nefarious practices. It hosted voter suppression. For instance, former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, William Rehnquist, was known as a young attorney to show up at voting sites on the South Side demanding that black and brown people uh, interpret parts of the Constitution in order for them to be able to vote. Um, and that, that happened here. And so they met in these areas to help them understand how do you prepare for this? Not only how do you protest it, but how do you prepare? You know, most often they were told to you know, recite the preamble to the Constitution verbatim, taught them how to do that. Justice William Rehnquist was said to be a part of Operation Eagle Eye, a voter suppression operation in Arizona in the 1960s. Federal laws have since made literacy tests for voters illegal. Because Lincoln was a prominent business owner, he was able to get conversations with important people in Phoenix, people who impacted economic and political change. Because of this, he worked with others to start the Greater Phoenix Council for Civic Unity. My remembrance is this, that Lincoln came to Phoenix before I did, and he was active in helping to start an organization called the Phoenix Council for Civic Unity. And really, it was the most, at the time, effective activist group for civil rights in Arizona. And he helped start it, and we became friendly uh, because of that, because I became involved, and subsequently I became president of the organization. So that was the origin of it. This is the voice of Herb Eli. Herb was not only good friends with Lincoln, and eventually his whole family, but he is one of the most prolific civil rights attorneys in Phoenix history. You might also know Herb as the founder of The Nash, the jazz performance space down on Roosevelt. But at the time, Herb was what a 1993 Arizona Republic article referred to as an outside agitator. I came to Arizona primarily because I, and I, and I won't bore you with that detailed history, but I came because I, I was outraged by what was happening to blacks in America and thought I could make a difference. And so I aligned myself with a law firm, uh, a lawyer by the name of Herb Finn, who was the leading civil rights lawyer at the time. And we tried civil rights uh, cases together. And then subsequently, I wrote the major laws in Arizona for public accommodations and that kind of thing. And I think that Lincoln's involvement in that was one of the very first major accomplishments of many that succeeded it that he was involved in. But in answer to your question, to a large extent, it was because of my interest in civil rights. 
that we became friends. Herb is not black. He's Jewish. But some segregation laws in Arizona at the time extended to the Jewish community as well. He came from the East Coast to Phoenix in hopes of helping make a difference. He quickly joined Lincoln on the Greater Phoenix Council for Civic Unity and became the legal counsel and vice president for the local NAACP. Lincoln understood the power of education, having received a Bachelor of Science degree from ASU and a doctorate in philosophy from the Union Graduate School. Here's Dr. Matthew Whitaker again. He was very competitive as well, uh, very intense and very competitive. And he wanted the black community to be competitive, uh, in part because he believed that in order to, first of all, he believed that freedom relied upon capital. In order to acquire capital, you would need land or jobs or something of that nature. In order to get that, you need an education. And if you don't have an education, you're not in that pipeline to any of that. Starting in the summer of 1952, the interracial team of Herb Finn and Hazel B. Daniels filed a lawsuit against the Phoenix Union High School District Board on behalf of three black students trying to register at the Phoenix Union High School. Herb Finn was the attorney that Herb Eli worked with. Hazel B. Daniels was the first black lawyer who passed the bar in Arizona. Together with the financial support of the Ragsdales, they argued that the taxpaying parents of these students had the right to send their child to any public high school in the county, not just the one for black students. Then, in February of 1953, it was found that segregating members of the African race from members of the Caucasian race was unlawful, and the delegation of power by the administrative board was unconstitutional. These students, and many others, were free to attend any high school in Phoenix. But like I said, this is just the tip of the iceberg. This same year, Lincoln Ragsdale and his family make history by moving to an all-white neighborhood in town. And his children, including Emily and Lincoln Jr., who will be joining us next week, bear the brunt of now attending a predominantly white high school. He continues to fight against more racially oppressive laws in Arizona, all while imposing the importance of strength on his family. Alongside his wife Eleanor, a civil rights activist in her own right, he pursues civil freedoms for all Arizonans. Eleanor Dickey Ragsdale was born in Pennsylvania in 1926, and the two married in 1949. As the pamphlet from her funeral says, this marriage set in motion events that forever changed the history of the city, county, and state. She was an educator and worked as a teacher at Dunbar Elementary School, which was once an all-black school. She was described to me as queenly, gracious, charming, and graceful. Truthfully, Eleanor could be her own episode altogether. She was Lincoln's partner in starting the Greater Phoenix Council for Civic Unity. She was a community organizer for the local NAACP. She was a member of The Links, a national invite-only organization for prominent Black women. 
notably Vice President Kamala Harris and civil rights activist and Malcolm X's wife, Betty Shabazz, are also members. She was from a very prominent Black family, too, going back generations. This is Dr. Matthew Whitaker. You'll remember him from part one. Among many other titles, he wrote a book about Lincoln and Eleanor Ragsdale and their impact in Phoenix. She went to Cheney University, which is the oldest historically black college in the country. Most people don't know that. And she studied to be a teacher, and she became a teacher. And when she was introduced to Lincoln here, her brother, William Bill Dickey, was a friend of Lincoln. And he said, I got this a sister that I want you to meet. And she came in on the train and they met and they hit it off almost immediately in part because they had same, some of the same interests and aspirations, which was to serve the community and um, to advance people of African descent. For the golfers who are listening, yes, he is referring to that Bill Dickey. Eleanor's brother Bill was a golfer here in Arizona, but more importantly, he was an advocate and a fundraiser for golfers of color. The Bill Dickey Scholarship Association has donated more than $3.8 million to scholarships for college-bound minority golfers. Eleanor and her brother were both fair-skinned, and Matthew says she and Lincoln used this to their advantage. Many people who don't understand who Black people are didn't realize that she was Black um, because they considered Blackness to be dark and immutable. And so she used that um, against the status quo, quite frankly, to help desegregate the Encanto Palmcroft area. That was her. Here's the legend of the house on Thomas Road, where the Ragsdales moved in 1953. As we spoke last week, redlining was very prominent in Arizona at the time. Black people could only own homes and businesses south of Van Buren Street. Now, if you know the grid of downtown Phoenix, I'm sure you'll know that Thomas is north of Van Buren Street. I'll let Lincoln Ragsdale Jr. tell the story. My uh, mother would drive down the alley, or my dad, because he worked late many times in the mortuary business, and so he only had a chance to see the house by peering over the oleander fence and looking into the backyard. So he never had a chance to go inside the house. Um, until we basically had um, bought the home at the last minute. Um, Basically, my mother didn't even buy the home. Uh, Another gentleman bought the home, Anglo-Saxon man. And at the time of closing, then he basically quick claimed the uh, property over to the Ragsdales, my mother and father, and um, that's how that happened. Lincoln Jr. is the third child and only son of Lincoln and Eleanor, and he is correct. Eleanor would drive by the house at 1606 West Thomas Road at night as to not be detected, and Lincoln would sneak quick glances. He was more dark-skinned than Eleanor, and thus in more danger while driving around the Encanto neighborhood. When they found the house they wanted to buy, the Ragsdales asked a white friend of theirs to purchase it for them and transfer the title to them. They were the first Black family in this neighborhood, and it came with troubles. Reports of people spray-painting, racial slurs, and even death threats came while they lived there. The year was 1953. The Fair Housing Act wouldn't be passed for another 15 years. Through the Greater Phoenix Council for Civic Unity, both Lincoln and Eleanor were able to accomplish a lot, not only for themselves, but for others. Many have credited this to Eleanor's grace combined with Lincoln's vigor. 
Civil rights attorney Herb Eli, who we met in part one, puts it this way. I want to say there were any others in, uh, involved in that, but Lincoln was unquestionably the leader because he had what we call in Yiddish chutzpah. He had nerve that was unbelievable that other people didn't have. And while on the one hand, he worked with George Brooks. George Brooks was a minister and a fellow civil rights activist. And George and he were very effective, but Lincoln was the more effective in terms of having, getting a relationship where people would understand and respect him on a day-to-day basis. One of the biggest battles Lincoln fought was against the banks. Here's Matthew again. You know, he with um, George Brooks um, and his wife, Eleanor, targeted the business structure. First it was banks, it was Valley National, which uh, eventually turned into Bank One, which is now Chase. They protested, they went to the bank, the president was Jim Patrick at the time, and they said, listen, uh, we deposit money in this bank and collectively that's turning into lots of money, but we can't get any loans. So not only are you discriminated against us, many of us, many of whom were veterans, we fought in a war to make the world safe for democracy, but we're not experiencing at home. Not only are you not providing loans to us, but our money in the banks are subsidizing loans that you're giving to white people. This didn't go over well, which is why Matthew says he went with George Brooks. George was a minister and was well known in the community. He was president of the NAACP, while Lincoln was vice president, so they would often tag team. So when folks did not um, acquiesce to their demands, he chained himself to the bank downstairs right in front of the door um, and refused to leave. He, with other leaders, encouraged um, black people to go to the bank and withdraw all of their money in pennies. Um, That didn't go over too well. Even though it annoyed people, this tactic that the duo coined creative conflict worked. Banks agreed to integrate the Valley National Workforce and loans for people of color became easier to obtain. This helped many start their own businesses. They protested places like the El Rey Cafe in Central Phoenix. The plot where El Rey's used to be is currently empty, but it was between Lolo's Chicken and Waffles and the Deuce on Central Avenue. It was a Mexican-American restaurant that wouldn't serve people of color. This was a protest that the youngest Ragsdale, Emily, remembers from her childhood. And to show how I wasn't prejudiced and didn't really know what was happening other than we were picketing, my mother gave me some money, says, go in and order a cheeseburger. So I went on in and I said, yeah, I'd like to have a cheeseburger, please. Say, well, we don't serve your kind. And I'm like, my kind? I didn't quite know what that meant. So I went out to my mom. I said, here's the money back. They don't serve my kind. What's my kind, mom? And she says, you're beautiful, just go on, have fun. Because I was seven years old. El Rey Cafe protests were some of the most notable pickets and sit-ins during this time. The Ragsdales famously fought for equal rights along with Hispanics and Latinos in the area. When your dad is one of the leaders of the civil rights movement, but you're also a young girl, your priorities are a little different. I was glad they have a day out of school. And so, you know, we marched on down, I was just, Happy to be there, you know, and we sat at the Capitol stairs inside. And I don't have that many stories. I know my dad spoke, and I, a lot of times I probably just fell asleep. I was there with mom and, you know, being together, just a regular thing, dad being up there speaking. Just another day at work. Some people's parents are dentists, some are change makers. Mm-hmm. 
Growing up in the Ragsdale house was in some ways no different than anyone else. There were four children, Elizabeth, Gwen, Lincoln Jr., and Emily. Each had after-school activities, interests, and hobbies. Mom and Dad went to work every day. But in some ways, it was a truly unique experience. Their parents' advocacy shaped their growing up years and their future lives. It was very clear to us, all of us, that, you know, we were in a situation that we were examples. And so when he would talk and speak, then we would like basically make sure that we were all together because it was important, as Emily had mentioned, um, that, uh, that if you were one person by yourself, you were vulnerable. But if you were together as a group, you were safe. So we basically stayed together as a group as children. And in the process, as I was saying, that um, um, basically he always helped us maintain our self-esteem. That is Lincoln Jr. again. He remembers his parents trying to maintain a balance in the home while also trying to discuss work. I would have to say we, I felt like we had a happy childhood, but they had code that they would be talking in front of us. So if they were talking about a white person, they would say W. If they're talking about a black person or a black situation, they'd say B. So we didn't feel like there was a racial issue going on because they're using code talking among themselves in front of us. Emily, the youngest, was born in the house on Thomas, and it's where the two grew up in their early childhood. But most of their memories came from the next big move. The Ragsdale family moved from their house on Thomas to their new house in Paradise Valley. While it was admirable that a black family was moving up to such a rich area, Lincoln Jr. remembers it ostracizing them from the community. Since we're away from them, they didn't get a chance to really embrace us because every time we transitioned from living uh, on 1606 West Thomas, where we could go to Encanto Park and go swimming and play uh, at the golf course there at Encanto Park and uh, go fishing and enjoy life, right at that time, they transitioned us to Clearwater Hills in Paradise Valley, right across from Paradise Valley Country Club. and. The people at Paradise Valley Country Club, I went there one time and they, with a friend of mine and the parents of the friend that I went with um, were informed that they asked their son not to bring me to Paradise Valley Country Club anymore. So basically after moving to Clearwater Hills, life was not as good because before I could go play golf at Encanto Park, I could ride my bicycle around, I could enjoy uh, the swimming pool, but then once we moved to Clearwater Hills, which is a gated community, we were basically isolated from the black community and then also isolated somewhat from people that of that economic class were very negative and were not embracing. Lincoln Jr. referred to this as being casualties of the Civil Rights War, the children that had to go into the environment that their parents were integrating. I started at Saguaro High School. Lincoln was a year older than I. And I went to an art class. And the art teacher said, I want everyone to decorate the outside of their folder with however they want it. So I took a black crayon and chalk and just started covering it with black. And next thing I know, my dad's at the school talking to me. He says, what are you doing here? What is this? Why are you putting black all over this? Well, it was kind of a cry out for help. I didn't know to say, you know, I need a little more support here. You know, you guys are busy doing your stuff. 
here I am, first only black girl, only black child. My brother was there too at school. And, you know, it was a new experience. Suddenly, they were stuck between not being good enough for the white community, but being at an arm's length from the black community. Matthew noted to me that a younger generation of civil rights activists in Phoenix were feeling the same way about the Ragsdales. He was considered radical in the 1950s, in the beginning part of the 1960s. By the time we get to the end of the 1960s, when the black power movement is ascending and becoming more prominent, particularly with younger people, he was then perceived as being the older, more moderate or conservative black leader um, who had bought into capitalism, you know, and bought this estate in Paradise Valley. And, and what do you want to know about us? You're rich now. You know, what, 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 you know how do you understand our, our movement, which is what young people do? From not being wanted at the community pool or accepted by the neighbors, Emily mentions that even the smallest things stood out. But it was a learning experience that, you know, was hard in lots of ways. Because high school, no boy ever asked me out or no dates at all. And really, when you're in high school, prom is the most important thing. Emily does have some good memories from living in Paradise Valley. Once we moved to Clearwater Hills, we had motorcycles, like, and I'd ride, and, and I rented a horse, and so I had a lot of wonderful experiences. Because the family was well off and now living adjacent to Scottsdale, Emily fondly recalls riding horses growing up, and of course, just like Dad, flying airplanes. I remember when I was going for my pilot's license, but I just turned 17, and I was it was the third time I was going to fly with this man at school. And um, I walked up, and he said, where's your driver's license? And he just, he failed me for the third time. And I said, oh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to pass. So I went and called my dad, and I was crying. I said, you know, the man, dad, I'm not going to be able to get my license because he's flunked me for the third time, and it's just not going to happen. And dad said, you know what, Emily, you've started this program. You're going to finish it. No one's going to ask you how many times it took you to get your license. All they're going to know is that you have a license. Yeah, quitting was not an option, actually. (laughs) Only Lincoln Jr. and Emily have their pilot's license in addition to dad. Lincoln put it in simple terms when I asked why. Well, we had an airplane. And if you have an airplane, you better learn to fly it. <laughs> if you got a boat, you learn to drive it. If you got a Porsche that has like the shift, you learn how to do that. So all I can say back in 1961, I remember my mother saying that before we had a lot of furniture in the house, my dad went out and bought a plane. So we were little and he would put us all in that plane and we would, you know, I don't want to say that maybe you aren't supposed to strap two kids together with one seatbelt, but I think that's what he did, and we would fly with my dad wherever he took us, and it was a wonderful experience. We didn't know. It was just a means of transportation for us. We didn't know that other, didn't even think about other people not having airplanes or whatever. We were just, that was our our life, and, and we just went with it. We'll be back after a short break. Hello. Producer Kaylee Monahan here. We're just taking a short break to let you know about our free mobile app. Whether it's stories like this one, politics, or breaking news, keep up to date with the AZ Central app, available in the App Store and Google Play.
all while flying around with his family and emphasizing the importance of education and strength at home, Lincoln Sr. was still pushing boundaries alongside Herb Eli. In 1963, Lincoln ran for city council. As a result, to a large extent, of Lincoln's candidacy for the city council under the ACT campaign, which was in 1963, and that campaign was originated because the city council then would not pass a human relations commission or any ordinances. And we diversified the candidates. And I and it's easy for me to say because not just because I'm here talking about Lincoln, because it's true. Lincoln was the outstanding candidate because he would go to uh, all different types of events and was so effective because so many of these people had never heard a black person uh, that, that they associated with the articulateness that he had, that his ability to, to get things across. And I just want to say that after the election was over, and he almost won, we almost won, got about 49% of the vote. As a result, to a large extent, Lincoln stayed involved. Despite losing the election, in 1964, Lincoln and his allies lobbied the Phoenix City Council to pass a public accommodations law. This ensured that public spaces like restaurants, hotels, theaters, etc. were open to all races, including the Wrigley Mansion, which held upscale events and dinners. This one was personal to Herb. But in terms of legislation, uh, needs that were, uh, took priority was the uh, was was the the necessity to uh, desegregate public accommodations, and and because all of the uh, major resorts, with one exception, uh, would not would not allow Jews and blacks were of course excluded, but this has to do with Jews and not blacks because uh, Wrigley. Uh, was the exception and was asked uh, with respect because uh, allowing Jews in also uh, started to accommodate blacks and Wrigley was was asked why he was different than Camelback and the other resorts. He says, well, Jews chew gum too, don't they? And so, (laughs) as the producer of Wrigley's gum. So, uh, but but I think again I think that the major thing uh, in Arizona what was the uh, was was public accommodations. But clearly to the average person, the after the schools were integrated, although the integration came with bumps. Uh, but at least it started happening earlier than it did in other places in the country. Lincoln's urgency to break down racial barriers before most of the country caught the eye of a very important person at the time, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In 1964, King made a historic trip to Arizona, and Lincoln was chosen as his escort around the Phoenix area. Famously, he spoke to a crowd of 3,000 people at Arizona State University. Lincoln introduced him. A few years ago, a recording of these speeches were found. I tell the story in the Valley 101 episode from January 2022 about the City of Mesa's relationship to MLK Day. Unfortunately, they are still under copyright, so I can't play them for you. But 
You can listen to them by searching Lincoln Ragsdale Audio Recordings on the ASU Library website. In a 1993 article about Lincoln and his wife in Phoenix Magazine, Eleanor states that meeting King was a life-changing experience. The year King visited the Ragsdales and the city of Phoenix was the same year that the U.S. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. One year later, in 1965, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act, something you'll recall from Part 1 that Lincoln also fought for, before everyone else. Lincoln died of cancer in June 1995. He lived in the house in Paradise Valley until the very end. Now, let's circle all the way back to listener Cassandra's question from Part 1. Who is the executive terminal at Sky Harbor International Airport named after? Gary Martelli, the curator of the Phoenix Airport Museum, explains. From what I understand, um, there was a city councilman, uh, Cody Williams, who proposed the idea to name the terminal after Lincoln J. Ragsdale because Lincoln J. Ragsdale was very active in championing for general aviation to, to stay at Sky Harbor. And so Cody Williams proposed the idea and then it went before city council and it was approved. Gary is correct. In October 1995, just a few months after Lincoln's passing, City Councilman Cody Williams suggested Lincoln's name to go on the executive terminal. In addition to everything he did for civil justice in Phoenix, Lincoln served on the Phoenix Aviation Advisory Board in the 1970s. He fought to ensure that people with private planes could still fly in and out of Phoenix and not be pushed out to the smaller airports in Scottsdale or Deer Valley. General aviation has always been really big in Arizona, so there's a lot of um, individuals that own their own planes and want to be able to fly to California or Sedona or wherever, you know, from the metro Phoenix area. And so the general aviation at one time was so big in Arizona that, you know, airports are rated based on their numbers of landings and takeoffs. And I believe we were like in the top 10, if not like number four or one at one time in the 1980s because of the amount of general aviation. And even while he was fighting for equal rights and opportunities on the ground, he was fighting for the same in the air. My dad was at the airport for 34 years. He had an airplane at Sky Harbor Airport. My dad loved to fly. My dad loved to go to the airport because we would go there as children and eat at the airport because you couldn't discriminate at the airport because it was federal. And so my dad loved the Grand Canyon and he loved going to the airport and we would go there all the time to eat um, back in the 60s. So luckily, um, Cody Williams put his name up there. Currently, general aviation and private pilots can still house their airplanes at Sky Harbor. Lincoln Ragsdale's name is still on the building. Important flights like sports teams and Air Force One still fly into the executive terminal today. The building is also now used as the airport headquarters for the Phoenix police. Lincoln and Eleanor Ragsdale were changemakers. They fought for an equal opportunity for all Arizonans at a time when the state was more divided than ever. They were also homemakers, father and mother, Herb, Emily, and Lincoln Jr. reminisced on New Year's Day celebrations at the Ragsdale House, where Eleanor would make a full spread of food and they'd all listen to jazz. They were business owners, running a funeral home, an insurance company, a flower shop, a real estate agency, and more. They pushed to integrate schools, neighborhoods, banks, 
businesses, and cemeteries. Lincoln and Eleanor are both entombed in the once-segregated Greenwood Memorial Lawn Cemetery, a place they pushed to be desegregated. I want to end with a quote from Lincoln Ragsdale from his Celebration of Life pamphlet his son so graciously gave me a copy of. It reads, Phoenix has always been wonderful. The good thing is that through it all, we've been able to overcome. Let the work I've done speak for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Valley 101. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. And if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed. Don't forget to rate us five stars wherever you're listening. Curious about something? Let us know. Visit valley101.azcentral.com to submit your questions to the podcast. Follow us on social media at azcpodcasts. This episode was edited and produced by myself, Amanda Luberto. Kaylee Monahan provided additional production support. Episode oversight by Kara Edgerson. Today's music comes from Universal Production Music. Valley 101 is an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com production. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next week.